it is we're looking at this text this morning. And if you don't catch it, I'll tell you why in just a couple minutes. Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what had taken place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for this particular portion of it. Uh, thank you for this, this, little, this little peephole through which we can see into the realities of the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom in all of its fullness, in its consummate glory and wonder. Lord, if you don't give us eyes to see these things, if you don't give us hearts to be thrilled with these things, to be amazed by these things, we'll leave today and none of this will matter. So please, Lord, somehow... In the foolishness of preaching, in the midst of all of the distractions, please, by your Spirit, give us these eyes to see and give us these hearts to be thrilled and amazed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in this uh, season between Easter and the Ascension. You know, we, it, we're, after, we're after the resurrection, the day of resurrection, the, the Lord's day of resurrection. And, and just a, a little farther out in front of us is ascension, the ascension of Christ. And during these 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, there are all of these appearances, that, that are rec- some of which are recorded for us in the Gospels. Uh, we looked a couple of weeks ago at uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. And, and last week you got to look at Jesus' uh, interaction with, with John and Peter. And, and gosh, what a, you know, what a wonderful passage and, and message there is that, that comes out of that. And, and I thank Scott for, for being here last week and for leading us through that. 
So, you know, here we are. And I I told you that I wanted to spend some time looking at these post-resurrection appearances. And so here we are. We're back at the crucifixion. What are we doing back at the crucifixion? Well, I think you caught it. I think you caught the fact that there were more appearances than just the appearance of Jesus following the resurrection. Did you catch that? That after the resurrection of Jesus, the bodies of many saints came out of the tombs and went into the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Now, I was at Publix this last week, and I was, you've had this experience. You know, you're, you go to the store to pick up a couple of things, and you, you, know, you go to the express checkout lane, which is anything but express. And so while you're there waiting... In the express checkout lane, you read all the covers of all the magazines, right? Now, these days, it's people and it's us and it's these little little soap opera guides that will will draw you, you know, that will tell you everything that's going on with all of these soap operas and stuff, all that kind of stuff. I remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago that when you were stuck in the express checkout lane, you, you didn't see people and us and the soap opera magazines, but you saw the star. And the inquirer, remember? Inquiring minds want to know. And, and it seemed like those people, those fo- what they did was focus on the bizarre, like the most recent appearances of Elvis, you know, where Elvis was most recently seen or, or someone whom Elvis had recently visited. Do you remember this stuff? Now, Matthew doesn't, look, Matthew doesn't record what would admittedly be a rather strange and bizarre occurrence just because it's strange and bizarre. Matthew has purposes for recording the things that he records. Matthew is writing his gospel in large measure to make a case for the fact, as is true with Mark, and in some form or fashion is true with John and Luke as well, but it's certainly true with Matthew and Mark, Matthew is writing his gospel because he has a burden to demonstrate that the king has come and when the king comes, the realities of the kingdom come with him. They are incarnate in him. He is the kingdom in the midst of the world. The king has come. The realities of the kingdom are present. Those realities are seen in the person of Jesus. Over 50 times, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven slash kingdom of God. Why does he do that? Because he has this burden. And for whom is he writing? To whom is he writing these things? He's writing to folks. He's writing to folks who are still stuck in the sludge of human life and existence. He's writing about these things to people who are strugglers. He's writing these things to people who are sufferers. He's writing these things for people so that their hearts might be encouraged as they wade through the sludge of life. That's not a particularly appetizing sort of metaphor or description But folks, doesn't it feel like sludge sometimes? Don't you feel many times like you're knee-deep in mud and your boots aren't high enough and the mud 
is overflowing the edges of the down into your boots, and you can't lift your foot up because you'll pull your foot out of your boot, and the boot will stay in the sludge, and you'll have to step barefooted with the next step into the mess that's out there. Those of you who have been around here for the two and a half or so years that we've been here, I hope know that I'm not down in the tooth about life. I'm not, I love life. I love the beauties of it. I love living here. But the realities are, folks, this is a sin-plagued, death-plagued, curse-plagued existence in which we live. And Matthew is writing against that backdrop to tell us That God is doing something. He's done something and he's doing something. And this strange little verse is in this paragraph for that reason. Against the backdrop of the sludge of life, the king has come, the kingdom is present, the realities of the kingdom are here. And those are things for us to be encouraged by and to be encouraged about. Now, as you come to this passage, I think there are three things, as always, there are three things that come out of this at least, and they, they sort of work together. They're sort of woven together, and you can't, you can't have one without the other, and you shouldn't try to have one without the other because they're all woven together here. As Matthew writes for people like us who find themselves in the midst of this world, there are three things at least that come out of this passage. First, he wants to encourage us with the example of the Son, the son's example. He wants to encourage us with the son's example. Second, he wants to encourage us with the son's vindication. The son's vindication. The son's validation. The son's vindication. And then third, he wants to encourage us with what you can call the believer's hope. The believer's hope. The son's example the son's vindication, and the believer's hope. So first, the son's example. What is it? What's the example here to which I'm referring and to which I think Matthew, at least in part, wants for us to pay attention to? The example that is set before us is the example of the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus in his suffering is an example to those who seek to follow him. Now, we make much, rightly, of the mediatorial work of Jesus, God incarnate. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. We make much of the mediatorial work of Jesus. And when we refer to the mediatorial work of Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, who is a substitute for us, and who then acts as a mediator between us and God on the basis of his substitutionary work. And his substitutionary work is twofold. And I'd love to talk about this for four hours. It's twofold. You have to remember that it's twofold. We typically think of of the mediatorial substitutionary work of Jesus exclusively in terms of his death. He dies as a substitute. But before he dies as a substitute, he lives as a substitute, satisfying all righteousness for you because you have not satisfied all righteousness. In fact, you haven't satisfied any of it. If you're really honest with yourself and you pray through the Ten Commandments and then you get through the Ten Commandments and you come to the two great commandments, 
we are positively admonished to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our being and our neighbor as ourselves. Loving our neighbors, this is, you know, this is craziness. Loving our neighbors to the extent and even beyond that we ourselves would wish to be loved. Positively admonished. To love God with every fiber of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I don't do that. I was talking with somebody last night who said, you know, my, my big sin, my big sin, it's not really anything I think. It's not really anything I do. It's fundamentally, basically, bottom line, this. I love myself more than God and more than anybody else. Well, there is one person who has walked this face of this earth who actually loved God with all all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, with every fiber of his being, and who loved his neighbor even beyond himself, emptying himself of all of his privileges and glories, taking the form of a servant in order to die as a slave impaled upon a cross. Why? Out of love Not for neighbors, but for enemies. Point is simply, before Jesus died for you, he lived for you. He was a substitute for you, living to secure all righteousness so that he might die having secured all righteousness as a substitute bearing the full measure of the wrath of God in your place. So because he died, you don't have to. And because he possesses all righteousness, he can give it to you and clothe you in it. That's the gospel. That's what I want to know. That's what I want to... And we make much of that, and we should, as we preach the gospel. And alongside that is this idea that Jesus is our example, and specifically, specifically in his suffering. Listen to Peter. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this that is suffering hate to be the bearer of bad news if you haven't heard this before, but it's the truth. It's the truth that is part and parcel of the gospel. Peter's saying it. Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit, superintended by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying it. To this you have been called. What? To suffering. You have been called to suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Read at that point, interpret at that point. He wasn't deserving of the suffering which he endured, but he endured it. And he has left an example for us. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the midst of his suffering, he continued to entrust himself to the Father who judges justly. Now, I want you to think with me for just a minute about the extent of that suffering. And I'll say to you what I said to the folks on Friday morning at the Refuge Bible Study, that I find it very hard to get this over, all right? It's sort of in my head... (laughs) 
but it's real hard to get it over. Think with me for a minute about the suffering of Jesus. The suffering of Jesus most certainly included the physical torments that he endured on the cross. The sufferings of Jesus certainly included the psychological horror and terrors that he anticipated as he looked ahead to the cross and which when he was in the garden with his disciples, asking his disciples to stay with him and support him and pray for him, the anxiety, the sense of dread about the cross and the psychological trauma that that caused to him caused him to sweat, perspire in droplets of blood, something that apparently physiologically can happen when somebody is under extreme duress and anxiety. Physical sufferings, psychological horrors and dread. But folks, the sufferings of Jesus extend beyond the physical and the psychological to the profoundly and deeply spiritual. The extent of the suffering of Jesus takes in, and this is what is so hard to get over, because I don't think we've ever tasted it. The thing that Jesus dreaded the most, I'm convinced of, was not the physical torment, not the psychological horror, but the loss of the face of his father. The loss of the smile of his father. The loss of the father's tender embrace. To have gone to the cross, to have endured all of the physical and psychological horror of the cross would have been nothing for Jesus compared to the loss of the Father's smile. When Jesus in the garden asks the Father to take the cup away from him that it might pass, you understand it in two respects because this is what the cup always is in one respect or the other in the scriptures. It is the cup of blessing on the one hand and it is the cup of wrath and judgment on the other hand. For Jesus, the cup had been a cup of blessing, and the cup of blessing becomes a cup of judgment and wrath, and in that, the face of the Father is turned away from the Son in blessing, in fellowship, in intimacy, and in love. And instead of the Father facing and embracing the Son, with intimacy and love and in fellowship, the face of the Father turns back upon the Son in wrath and judgment, the full measure of it. Jesus suffered the eternity and infinity of hell in the cross as the Father turned upon him to visit his judgment upon him. That's why the veil is ripped from top to bottom. What Jesus lost was the smile of the Father's face. And the depth of the dread and horror that enshrouded and encompassed and enfolded him 
begins to describe the extent to which the son continues to entrust himself to the father. And here's the amazing thing. The son upon the cross who becomes the enemy of the father as he bears your sin and my sin and suffers wrath and judgment and indignation against that sin. The son continues to entrust himself to the only one in the universe who is worthy of his trust, the father. You see that? You see? The father has become the enemy of the son. The son has become the enemy of the father. I know there's mysterious stuff in this because all the while the father is visiting his wrath and judgment upon the son, all the while he is turning his wrath and anger against him, he is delighting in him and loving him for the extent of his obedience and the extent to which he is entrusting himself to the father. And yet the son who has become the enemy of the father as he experiences that wrath and judgment continues to entrust himself to him who is faithful and who judges justly. The extent of the obedience of Jesus, of the trust of Jesus. Now folks, in what I'm about to say, I do not minimize for one second any of the sufferings that anybody in this room has had to endure. No, nor do I minimize the totality of the sufferings that anybody and all of us together in this room have had to endure. But I will say to you that the sufferings which you have had to endure do not begin to touch the limitless suffering of Jesus in his death on the cross as the father turns away from him in love and turns back toward him in wrath and the son continues to entrust himself to him who is faithful. That's the example that is set before us. And the idea is for me in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of the struggles of my life, truly minuscule when compared to the infinity of the sufferings of Jesus. The idea here is that I have a Savior who has walked this path before me. And I'm simply getting in line behind him, following his summons, following his call to walk this path with him out there in front of me. He knows, he understands, he's experienced it, and Hebrews makes very clear that in the midst of my distress, I have a sympathetic high priest, one who knows and understands, and one to whom I can go in the midst of my sufferings to receive grace and mercy and help. So you have an example. You have an example in the Lord Jesus Christ of one who endured more than we can even begin to measure or calculate and one whom we are called to follow. And then here's the second thing. Here's the vindication of the son. Now, I love what happens here. I mean, this is, you know, this is Cecil B. DeMille stuff, 
for those of you who know who Cecil B. DeMille is or was. Old director of old movies. But I don't know, maybe Steven Spielberg, maybe Peter Jackson. I don't know, you know, people who make big dramatic films. This is the stuff of which great drama is made. Here is the sun dying for us, establishing for us a pattern, setting for us an example. And at precisely the moment where Jesus is experiencing the wrath of God and is entrusting himself to the Father, saying to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At precisely that moment, there is an earthquake. The rocks are split. The ground shakes. The tombs are broken open. Now let me have you look back at the Old Testament at Psalm 18, and you wonder, where is this stuff coming from? Well, the Bible is really, really serious about imageries and, and painting pictures for us. And when these rocks split and the ground shakes and the tombs are opened, it is a vindication of the work of Jesus. It is a validation of the work of Jesus. It is God shouting from the heavens, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my good and faithful servant who at precisely the most anguished moment of his life cries out to me and entrusts his soul to me. The Father shouts from the heavens and says, well done. Listen to Psalm 18. A psalm of David, but it is a psalm of David which points away from David to the greater David. Listen to just some of these verses. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Picture Jesus, the greater David, the ultimate author of this psalm. Picture Jesus. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Even when all of the powers of hell are unleashed against me at the Father's command. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me, bound me, dragged me down. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came to him and reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And then verse 16. He sent from on high and he took me and drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Who's the only one with clean hands? Who's the only one worthy of a reward from the Father? The perfect Lamb of God who comes spotless, pure and clean and offers himself and is impaled upon a cross, is engulfed by his enemies, sin and death and darkness and blackness. From the sixth to the ninth hour, the whole land was dark. And he cries out to the Father, even when it seems that the Father is against him, when all the madness of the world, as John Calvin puts it, when all the madness of the world is against him, he cries out, and the Father comes from heaven, and he splits the rocks apart, and he causes the ground to tremble, and he opens up the graves. You know, there was an earthquake on the morning that Jesus was raised. An earthquake appointed by God for the purpose of validating and vindicating the son of his love. And he brought him out into a broad place. He brings him into a promised land, fresh and new. And he does it because he delights. The father does in his son. You read this, Matthew. That's I'm absolutely convinced of it. I wonder, I was thinking about this this last week, you know, I've been saying for two weeks now, for more than that. I wonder what the passages were that Jesus talked with the, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus about. I wonder if Jesus took them to Psalm 18 and said, you thought this was about David? This is about me and what just happened in Jerusalem. This is about me. This is a picture of what the Father was going to do to vindicate and validate my work so that he might be praised and so that my people might themselves be redeemed and delivered. So there's the example of the Son, the Son who suffers, but the Son who then is validated by the mighty power of God, these physical phenomena that occur. And then there's the third thing, the believer's hope. The believer's hope that emerges from this. See, here's the thing. On that Easter morning, when Jesus comes out of the grave, he doesn't come out alone. He doesn't come out alone. The text says, maybe a little bit obscure as you read it. It may be a little bit hard to get at, but the commentators are pretty uniformly agreed that what the text is saying, what, what is happening in the text is that Matthew, maybe because he was so excited about it, maybe because he wanted to connect all the dots, but certainly from the perspective of the Holy Spirit, Matthew wants for us to understand that after the death of Christ and after the entombment of Christ, these tombs that were broken open from those tombs, verse 53, after Jesus' resurrection, 
Other saints, verse 52, came out of those tombs and went into the holy city and appeared to many. When Jesus was raised on Sunday morning, he wasn't raised alone. There were others who were raised with him. Not everybody. The text says many. It doesn't say everybody. You know, we don't know who they were. We don't know how long they had been dead. Some for five minutes, maybe. Some for 10 years. Some for 50. Some for 500. Who knows how long these people had been dead? Familiar people? Unfamiliar people? Who knows? But many people came out of the ground when Jesus came out of his tomb and went into the city and appeared to many. Why is that? Here's why. I think. I'm convinced. When those saints came out of the grave, that was a validation that the Old Testament saints had not believed in vain. As they looked down the corridor of history, as they looked toward a Messiah who was going to come, a king and conqueror who would destroy evil and death and everything associated with them, when that king came, when he brought the kingdom, when he broke the back of Satan, the thing for which all of those Old Testament saints had hoped, Jesus came out of the ground and many of them came with him. And that says to me, they had not hoped in vain. That says to me that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just for Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who, as Paul says in the first verses of Romans, is validated as the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection isn't just for Jesus. It's for all of those who have entrusted themselves to him. And those Old Testament saints came out of the ground to be an encouragement to first century saints 8th century saints, 15th century saints, 21st century saints, they came out of the ground to be an encouragement to you who have believed that you are not believing in vain. No matter what the world around you says, no matter whether you get stuck in the sludge of life or not, you have not believed in vain. So what is this resurrection thing all about? Well, it's about these things. Here's Jesus as our example. Jesus who goes before us, as the Book of Common Prayer says, to sanctify the graves of his people so that when he returns, the rocks will split, the earth will tremble, the tombs will open again, and all of those who have trusted in him like him, will come forth and be brought into a broad place, a new heaven and a new earth, to enjoy it forever. What what happened to these folks who came out of the graves? Everybody wants to know. John Calvin wanted to know. What happened to them? I think one of two things. Either they came back to life and had to go through death again, Or, Jesus didn't ascend alone. He came forth in a glorified body 
Their bodies come out of the graves, post-resurrection bodies. Maybe Jesus didn't ascend alone. We don't know. I acknowledge that. But what the resurrection communicates to us is that we who have hoped in Christ will come out of the graves, be fully restored just as they were, to be ushered into the broad and beautiful place to leave desolation and the sludge of life forever behind us. So as Christians, we live between two poles. This is where we live. We live between the resurrection of Jesus behind us and our own resurrection in front of us. That's where we live. And we keep our eyes fixed on those two poles as our hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, Thank you that when you came back, you gave us a testimony of the fact that you did not intend to come back alone. But being raised, you brought back with you others raised as you were raised. Oh, Lord, would you encourage our hearts with this hope as you call us to walk the path that you have first walked, the path of struggle, the path of suffering. Lord, may we keep this day fixed in our vision. We bless and praise you that it is coming. And we thank you in your name. Amen. We encourage you to turn with me to the concluding hymn. I love thy kingdom, Lord. And as you stand to sing this.